Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 253. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have another guest, Bruce Cole. Hey, Kip, how are you? Doing very well, thank you for asking, even given the irony, because today we're going to be discussing an article entitled, I See You, But Don't Ask Me How I'm Doing. And this was written by Dr. Adam P. Stern in Harvard Health Blog from Harvard Health Publishing. And Bruce, I of course have many thoughts on this, as with any topic, but this was actually an article that made you think of me, and before it ever became a podcast topic, you sent it along to me, and I'm curious to hear a little bit more of your perspective on that. So before this was a podcast topic, Kip, I think it was a life topic that you and I talked about in our relationship. I think you're the first person in my life who has stopped me when I've asked the question, how are you doing, and maybe not been so excited about the question. And so I've thought about that a lot since I've had that experience with you, and the article made me think about that. So I'm curious, actually, to ask you why you respond to this question in the way that you do. What is it about how are you doing that gives you pause? Well, I've been thinking about this in preparation for the episode because I suspected it might come up. And I have a couple of answers. One, as a relatively somber person, at least internally, I feel great optimism for the rest of the human species and not always for myself. It's a difficult question because my answer is often in the negative. There could be great things going on in my life. And still, when someone asks me how I'm doing, my first thought is often not great. And I don't want to bum this person out and tell them that truth because even the least empathetic among us could still absorb some of that negative energy, and I don't want to give it to them. Additionally, which I suspect will someday be my downfall, I have this natural or instinctive aversion to traditions. And should I ever have kids or descendants of my own, I'm sure they will scoff at that because I may have tried to instill certain traditions that I believed in. But there's a certain thoughtlessness and automation to the way that a lot of us treat tradition and cultural behavior that I'll admit is not inherently wrong, but is unthinking and at times unfeeling in a way that to me feels inauthentic. And how are you feels like the crown jewel, the emblem of this phenomenon that I'm not wild about. And then lastly, as would surprise no one who's listened to the podcast or has ever spoken to me, gotten coffee with me, etc., the question is, by its nature, summative. Tell me generally how you're doing. I think is the implied message. People don't necessarily want to hear about how your family's doing and how that's therefore affecting you and how your sleep schedule, which was disrupted by a neighbor, is affecting you. They want to know overall what's your general status. And I get it. We live in a fast-moving world and a world in which people, myself included, don't necessarily have the attention or time for such complex emotions. But I know at least within myself, that's how I experience the world. I don't experience the world as the basic six colors of the rainbow. There's gradients in between. And I don't think that's just me. In fact, I'm very confident that other people in the world experience gradients. And so to me, it would feel wrong if my mood is orange-yellow or teal to say, oh, I'm feeling yellow or oh, I'm feeling blue because it's not quite true. And I really value the truth, especially if I'm able to touch it or share it with others. As I told a therapist recently, who definitely helped me come to this conclusion, asking and answering how are you is not only a question, but a cultural marker, a sign of community. Asking or responding to it in a normal way is sort of like a membership card that reveals 
oh, you're one of us. You're asking or answering how are you. And framing it in that context really helps me because I don't feel like I belong to the group that asks how are you. And I don't know that I can articulate it more clearly than that except to say something in the question, perhaps the aforementioned bullet points, strikes me as not Kip-like. And I know I'm not the focal point of every how are you conversation. And there are many other people who ask, receive, or process this question, but that's my relationship to it. And very earnestly, I'd like to say that I appreciate your patience and the patience of others who put up with me in my most rebellious moments where I don't simply answer reluctantly and instead say, what if you ask me a different question? Or I don't want to answer that question because what a real pain. If I could use expletives here, I would but your patience doesn't go unnoticed by me. And I'm really flattered you found an intellectual or positive spin to it. It's interesting to hear you say that. I think all that makes sense to me when I stop and really think about it. Of course, sometimes when we are asking this question, we're walking by someone on the way to the cafeteria, meeting someone on the street, in whatever context that is. And this is one of those examples where I think that context really matters, that there's a difference between asking a colleague that maybe we don't really know, but we have sort of a moment of friendly eye contact versus someone that we have a relationship. And I think one thing you really pose is this notion of, can we elevate that conversation with a question that may be a little more precise? And I think a lot about precision of language in my life in general. So I am as guilty as the next person of saying, ah, I had a bad day, or this was the best piece of music I've ever heard. And really, both of those things are never true. But I wonder, is there some kind of alchemy that speaking in that way somehow changes how I think or interact with those particular things that I'm talking about? So when I think about this question, I think that the first thing to really do for me is to think about that context. Who am I talking to? And what am I trying to say? And really giving that some pause. And with that valuable mention of context, I'm going to bring in Dr. Stern's article in which he references the worst day of his life. And on that day, how he, quote, noticed how many times an hour Americans ask some version of how's it going? Not quite how are you, but they're all related in a way. He goes on without actually wanting to know the answer. To your point, Bruce, I think that's where context comes in. And I've often been rather blunt in my application of rebellion because at times I simply refuse to answer the question or really resent it. But I recognize that certain colleagues I see once a month aren't going to get to know me in that authentic way. And that's okay. A journey towards a more healthy relationship that I need to make because it's not always going to be that deep. And in fact, in those moments, I know I'm not appreciating how truly exhausting it would be to have relationships that authentic so persistently. I think Dr. Stern and I may relate, though, in that I feel as though I'm on the opposite side of the spectrum, not exhausted by countless deep relationships, but drained by a high quantity of superficial ones, or at least ones that, to your nod to language, are expressed with linguistic superficiality or a lack of linguistic precision. Stern goes on to remark that on January 19th, 2018, he dodged that question five or six times before one of his best friends in the office asked, and he was about to reveal a potential cancer diagnosis that he was processing and thinking about when he realized, quote, 
How do you tell someone in the hallway outside the cafeteria that you are waiting on imaging results to confirm a suspected cancer diagnosis? End quote. And while a lot of the article resonated with me, and if I haven't already thanked you, I really appreciated your sending it, that really stands out in my mind because I don't think there's ever a wrong or right place to be human. And frankly, we carry these things with us everywhere. If you've just gone through a divorce, you're still divorced on the subway or on the bus, visible to tens or hundreds of other people, just as much as you would be walking home or in your kitchen. And the fact that there are places in our society that we deem less appropriate for vulnerability or opening up is intriguing to me. I suspect some listeners might presume social ineptitude in me, and I suspect that I bear a bit of that. But while I follow those rules and try not to have those conversations too often in public, I also think that's one way to break down the stigma of not having them. It really saddens me if I'm with a friend, and this has rarely happened, and they begin crying because they're being open with me about a topic they're processing or a struggle they're going through, and they apologize. Yes, I think they do that in private, but with the hope that I'm being at least a decent friend, I think society should see people with other people going through things and having difficult conversations. I think that's different than inviting eavesdropping or intrusion, and maybe that's why we're nervous about having these conversations publicly. But what I also find so interesting is that conversations are a distinct type of experience, often in my perception, a mixture of intellectual and emotional. I'm not saying they can't impact you, but it's one thing to talk about, let's say, a breakup, than to be broken up with in public. One of these things is happening to you, and the other is maybe reliving it with a caring friend who's interested. I'm not saying any of this is simple. I just really lament that there are certain spaces in our society where we think this is allowed, because I would say that quantity is really small. And I'll bet if someone or some algorithm took the time to geographically map out areas of the world where we all agree it's okay to be vulnerable, I think we would see a profound display of pointillism. I think you raise a really valuable point, Kip, here, that we can really rethink how we are asking these questions, when we're asking these questions, maybe asking a different question, but more importantly, opening this vast space that maybe we're going to get something different out of it. So really, as referenced in the article, this notion is that we all walk around all day and say a thousand times, sup, how you doing? Or maybe we aren't even paying that kind of attention. Maybe we're on our phones. Maybe we have our earbuds in. Maybe that, hey, how are you, is really a level that a lot of us don't even get to anymore because we're in our own realms. But really, if you stop and think about it, and sort of the call you're giving us here, I think, is to this notion that actually, if you stop and ask that question with kind of genuineness and attentiveness, and then leave some space for whatever that answer is going to be, that there's this rich field of possibility in that. And I think about my own experience here, in that I've had conversations that have started in kind of a superficial way, that maybe I interact with someone who's a friend and I ask them how they're doing because it's the first question that comes to my mind. But then something is going on for that person. Maybe there's an illness or there's been a breakup and it opens a door in a way that maybe wouldn't have opened if I'd asked a different question or done something differently. So I'm aware that on one hand, this is kind of an imprecise question 
it's a big question that maybe is the kind of thing that we're just doing out of habit more than out of intention. But even in sort of the magic alchemy of language, I think there's also opportunity for real richness in communication here. What I find really curious about your mention of the word opportunity is that you and I share a colleague, and she often asks me, as I believe is true of others, how I'm doing. And I've told her what I've told you and now the audience, however they choose to take it, how I feel about the question or any of its brethren. And she's remarked, which I've heard from others, that to her, it gives great freedom. We can choose how to answer it. And if you give it to someone, as you've just indicated, who wants to answer in a deeper way, they'll let you know. And if you give it to someone who wants to give a short one-word answer, that's what you'll get. And in that way, you don't trap the conversation. And I absolutely appreciate that. It's just my theory, absolutely speaking from a subjective place, of wanting depth, but also fearing vulnerability at times in a paradoxical human way, that there are many human circumstances in which we have too much freedom. Those of us who have subscriptions to streaming services, but can't choose what to watch, in an array of hundreds if not thousands of programs and movies available to us. And there have been psychological studies revealing the somewhat paralytic effect of having too many options, the paradox of choice, if you will. And so I'm really intrigued by it and the way in which, to your point, it occurs in the daily minutiae of our lives. At one point in this article, Stern remarks that he experimented a bit, and when people would ask him what's up, he would say, good, you? Which linguistically doesn't always work, but he remarked that no one seemed phased or reacted differently. And so he continued to experiment. And to me, that suggests that we're only partially listening. And I appreciate that we're all dedicating our brain power to what we find most important, or maybe said more precisely, to what our brains, evolutionarily crafted, deem most important. But it is really interesting that different people approach linguistic listening in such varied ways that we can have drastically different experiences. Part of me is excited by this conversation because it leads me to think of common human experiences, fights between spouses or partners. How often is that happening simply because of different definitions of language or different interpretations of the same language that we've never discussed? I will disagree with Stern, and I'd really love your thoughts on this, in two of the claims he makes during the article. First of which is that people ask this, quote, without actually wanting to know the answer. I would contend that you can't know these people's intentions, though I agree with his subjective reading. And then later, that he remarks it's, quote, a stand-in for, I see you. And I would say it's a closer stand-in for, I'm loosely aware of your presence and or person, but I may not have the time, energy, or emotional skill set to acknowledge your personhood. So I actually noticed the same things you did, Kip. And I think there is probably a larger presumption, if we were just to ask people on the street, that this is not a great question to ask. It's not a question to ask if you want to go deeper with people. And I think certainly in the context of the article, particularly the author talking about his cancer experience and how and when to bring that into conversation with people, I think that you definitely see the flaws in this kind of question and, and how it's asked. Something he also does in the article is ask us to think about other kinds of questions that we could ask. 
And so knowing that you and I were going to have this conversation, that's the kind of thing I've been playing a little bit with and doing some experiments with in my life to see what happened. So for example, instead of saying to someone, hey, how was your weekend? I might say, oh, I know your son was in a play this weekend. How did that go? And so I find in some way that I feel like asking a question that's more focused garners a more focused answer, but I wonder what I'm cutting off in that. He also suggests in the article perhaps something more general, and there's always that possibility, right? So something like, hey, it's great to see you. And my problem with that is it's not a question. So sure, I think it's great to see people, and that may just be the beginning and end of it. But if we want to continue to sort of deepen the conversation in our lives, what's the vehicle that's going to do that, even in those moments when maybe we're not having a deep sit-down conversation with people? I have a friend who years ago really presented to me a notion that I hadn't thought of, which was she earnestly believes that in her life, everybody she meets is for a purpose. And that's people on the elevator. That's people who are pumping her gas. Every interaction has value. And so what if we were to approach our lives in our conversations that there was some value in any interaction we were having if we could just find a way to get to it? I think that's a really beautiful sentiment and the type of person I hope I get to know in my life. I also really appreciate your thinking about other questions because I've done the same. And there have been people in my life who've said, I hear you. You're not wild about this question. Is there an alternative? And I often say, not necessarily. And in fact, I think I also struggle with the question because to me it feels formulaic and sets out a conversational path that I don't want to be identical. Maybe in parallel to your friend, I also see value in the people I've met and would argue that every version of the person I meet is valuable in a new and different way. I'm currently sitting here recording this episode with you in December of 2019, but it's not impossible, and I would say quite likely in my mind, that a February 2020 Bruce might have different insights and different modes of kindness or creative exploration. But if I ask you how you are at every possible juncture, I don't think it's impossible that you might be signaled to respond habitually with a more constant and subconscious Bruce rather than your most recent version of you, or insert anyone here. And I'm well aware that for the self-aware folks among us, they might say, Kip, I would answer differently every time because I'm a different person, and therefore your theory might be proven correct. But there's a sameness to the question if it's repeated in the same way that I love you, to me, loses a bit of its value if we repeat it too frequently, that I think is captured in this article. I don't know that I have any powerful other questions. And conversation to conversation, I find myself drawn towards different things. I would cite here, as I worry I do far too often, improv as a route to interacting with other people. And what I've loved about improv scenes that I've been in, or exceptional improvisers, is that they draw from the smallest of seeds. They enter the stage with a slightly lethargic gait, and therefore their character is now this really sluggish, sleepy person. Their language becomes sleepier, their questions, their actions, everything about them is embodied and contained by a single, perhaps random gesture that initiated the conversation. And so I've tried to find that similarly with people around me in conversations and would offer that to listeners who themselves feel exhausted by how are you. 
Is there a strange image you've seen recently, or a sound that's rattling around in your brain that you want to discuss? Or in my case, a question, whether whimsical or earnest, that you want someone else's honest reaction to, whether that falls in a humorous or sincere place? And as perhaps I should have said towards the beginning of this episode, I recognize that every social interaction is different, and so there is no rule. And I wonder if my resentment, to give it a word, towards how are you, or similar questions, comes from a life hack slash productivity space of our culture that wants to find the most effective questions. To your insights earlier, sometimes questions we aren't wild about can still give rise to conversations that are meaningful with people we care about. And I think that's really key. I suppose my relationship to language makes me paranoid that my expressions of love or concern with other people really only have one shot or mode, and that's through the words that I choose to use. And I'd like to end this conversation on one of the final quotations in Stern's article, in which he says, quote, Americans are tired of fakeness. We're exhausted by phony empathy. And I would simply ask, are we? We don't seem tired of producing it, as far as I can observe in our culture. I really like that you bring the example of improv to this conversation, because I think that it gives us a really great model to be a little more expansive and a little less structured in how we think about our conversations. Again, in thinking about this conversation, I sort of zoomed out of my body when I was asking people how they are and saw that from another perspective to really see what was I asking. Did I just want to have a super casual, hey, how are you, quick moment with them? Did I want to use it as an opportunity to go deeper? Did I want it to go anywhere it wanted to go? Was I open to sort of a whole range of possibilities with that? And I think improv really calls us into that moment and calls us into being present and to have that kind of language where anything can happen. And that's really permissible and encouraged. And I think that one thing about this question that really gets tricky is it's easy to shut it down. And how are you can just become that pro forma thing that we ask. I think the quote that you mentioned is really powerful. And I too wonder if it's sort of an aspirational nature that we might really one day be beyond this kind of conversation. And I don't know if we are yet. I think something else he mentioned in the article is looking at this question in terms of other cultures. And in Germany, if you were to ask someone, how are they doing? You would never have sort of a flip kind of quick answer that that would be inappropriate. And I think that that's a great model for us is we maybe think of kind of digging ourselves out of our current ways of being into being more empathetic, present people that there's an incredible possibility of exchange and communication that can happen when we take off the headphones, put down the phone, ask a question in a way that's genuine and attentive and precise, and then open up and see what happens. Which I think has been exactly what you've done in your preparation for and your timbre throughout this conversation. And so before we formally conclude, as I know you're prepared for, What would you like the audience to think about and consider after listening to this conversation? I would love the audience to pick any kind of regular interaction they have, especially maybe one that they are not paying so much attention to otherwise. Maybe it's someone from a store, maybe it's someone they're buying coffee from, a security person. And to pause in that moment and really mindfully think, what do you want to offer in that conversation? And what do you want to receive? 
and do you have some openness to allowing whatever happens from there to happen? I really appreciate that encouragement. And I don't know that I have all that much more to add. I think I've said most of, if not all of my thoughts on the topic, but I'd love to know what our audience thinks about alternatives to these types of questions. And if there's any they've found to be particularly moving, effective, positive, etc. And lastly, as Stern talks about areas geographically where it's difficult to get into certain conversations, are there moments or spaces in your lives where you don't want to be asked how are you or parallel questions? Perhaps you'd prefer silence or no conversation, or maybe you earnestly yearn for something deeper and would really rather not be asked how are you for that reason. But of course, Bruce, as a longtime listener of the show and a dear friend, I want to thank you for all that you've shared and certainly the fact that you brought not only this article to me, but the opportunity to discuss something I feel passionate about, if resentful towards. And it's certainly a space worth exploring. And there is no one else I would have rather done it with. So thank you for your time and eloquence today. Thank you, Kip. It's been a pleasure to be here and have this conversation with you. I think one of the things that our friendship has really taught me, and this podcast too, is to stop and think about some things that I habitually do and maybe find a better, more thoughtful way to deal with that. So thanks for having this conversation. Well, authentically, it was, of course, my pleasure. And as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are only two voices, and we genuinely love to hear from you. So if you have any thoughts, opinions, or feedback of any kind, please reach out to us. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show as well as supporting us on Patreon, where in exchange for your support, you'll receive exclusive perks like bonus episodes and pre-show recordings. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.